We, we need some billboards. I know what you're saying. Welcome to the Raft Podcast, Let's Fix Things, where Chus and myself, Joe Fletcher, explore the world of connected experiences, spanning from connected services, platforms, and devices over industries such as transportation, smart home, logistics, healthcare, and media. Chus and I started this podcast to explore design and strategy topics in more depth coming from the projects we handle in our design consultancy. Now, on to the show. Chus, it is our second to last podcast from Kuala Lumpur. Lumpur, I pronounce A, not a U. U, not an A. God damn it. What a horrible <laughs> opening. Anyway, <laughs> what's going on over there? It is freezing over there, I hear. Yeah. Everything outside looks nice and icy. I'm I'm inside with the heating on. It's negative. You said negative five right now outside. It is heating up, but yeah, it was negative five just an hour ago. <sighs> Damn, it is. Uh, well, it is still much hotter over here. It's like 27, and uh, my nose is still still um, sniffly from last week. So we didn't record last week because both of us got sick. Um, yeah, I was I was sicker than I had been in in years. I don't know what I had. Um, but it's, it's like maybe being in the region, I guess I'm still sort of getting my immune system adjusted to things. Uh, and then you, you had throat problems as well. So neither of us were in any capacity to talk. That was the first time ever where throat problems actually stopped me from doing my job. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, it was, it was not a, uh, positive, not a very positive week, but we are now coming into a much more, uh, positive week. I am only here for another, a little over a week. A week and a few hours, and then I'm on a plane back to Amsterdam. I have been gone for ten weeks or so, and it is. I have, I have, uh, and my body's gone to crap over here. I have just been eating and eating and eating and drinking, and it has been a wonderful time. But I can't wait to get back and get back to uh, to see you guys. Get back to have a little routine too. <laughs> so we can do, uh, we can do the normal format here. Uh, let's, uh, let's get talking about what's in the news. Yeah. So I I read it this morning. It's amazing. So the, the Galaxy Note 7, that one should have been called the Fire Phone, not the one from Amazon, because, uh, of course, the battery lights itself on fire in some cases. And there's been a big recall. Yeah, go ahead. So so b- by the way, this is something I noticed now. I get asked at the airport to t- that I cannot check in any lithium-ion batteries in my check-in luggage. And I don't know what of my things have lithium-ion batteries. Like, does my rechargeable toothbrush have it? So I, last time I had to take everything out and carry it on. It was the like, yeah. It, it seems non-discriminatory because of this whole issue. It's been like that for a while, and I think they're now looking for people who carry spare batteries for their laptops, which is lithium-ion, and you know these these phone charging packs also are all lithium-ion, and they don't want them short-circuiting in in the cargo hold of the airplane because nobody can get to them, right? I mean, better safe than sorry. I, I'm I'm not going to argue that, but yeah, it just it it feels all of a sudden we had this one incident, and then everything, uh, you know, everything's changed, and it's it's quite frustrating. But you also have to wonder, you know, is this going to happen again? Which I which is clearly what everyone's worried about. Yeah. So w- what's interesting is that Verizon actually a while ago put out a software update to make these phones unable to charge or at least unable to charge to a certain level so they wouldn't be a security issue. And 
what they wanted is people to return these phones and then handle that in a proper way, probably give them a replacement phone or something. But there's still people who are managing to charge these devices and keep on using them. And, and as, as they say in the article, there are still thousands of people that um, have been using this phone over the past few months. And what Verizon has started doing now is rerouting their calls. Any call they make to whatever number is rerouted to customer service. If you're trying to call your mom to say hi, you will have Verizon customer service on the phone if you have a Samsung Galaxy Note 7. But now they're, they're, they're going to brick it, but they're holding out before they brick it. Is that correct? Yeah, I think they're just doing a, a multi-stage until they hurt the least amount of people by just bricking their phone. But it's amazing that a piece of hardware can be bricked by the person you bought it from at a distance now. That's, that's the most Internet of Things thing I have seen lately. You know, the first time I was ever amazed by this was was like a decade ago when I rented a car and I locked the keys in the car and I called up. I was like, oh, I'm going to have to wait for a tow truck. And they unlocked the car remotely. And it was that it was a moment of magical mystery that I was like, what? That can happen. This is a real thing. I was blown away. I was so happy. So I'm, I'm glad actually some of these remote things are in place. Um, yeah, it has a lot of implications for a bunch of other stuff. <laughs> yeah, whatever. it makes me feel about um, or talk but, about the golden key. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but in situations like this, I'm glad that you can actually um, brick people's phones. Uh, you know, as, as, a, as a frequent flyer, uh, it is it is distressing that, you know, there are, uh, I don't expect people to know what phone they have, right? They're like, my mom would never know if she had a Galaxy Note 7. Right, so I actually think it's the right, it's the right thing to do. I think they should brick it as soon as possible because it is a liability. Um, but it and ugh, God, what a what a what a <laughs> complete complete cluster there. Yeah, I have a slightly different vision on that. Being a European, everybody is um, just uh, responsible for their own things, uh, which means they can just deny you entry to a flight. But I don't think you should ever break people's stuff they want to burn their hands, that's fine. I know in some countries you can sue the company for that, but I think it's going a little bit after the warnings. It's it's in your own hands, literally. But uh, let's yeah, talk but about something else. Like, nah, you, no counter, but fine. Move yeah, on. No, no, you're, no. you're wrong. You're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I'm fine with being wrong. So um, we talked about Amazon Go a while ago. Um, the, the new shopping concept from Amazon that they demoed in a video where you can just walk into a shop, identify yourself, and afterwards the tracking system in the shop um, sees what you are putting in your basket and taking out. And uh, the payment is a thing of the past, or at least the moment of payment is a thing of the past. It's, it's Uber for shopping. Um, it seems that Intel now has invested $100 million in doing uh, R&D towards the retail space and, and what chips and, and sensors can mean in the retail space. So they're developing uh, little robots that can drive around the store and do inventory checks, um, other sensors that can track customers and what they're looking at. And what Intel's trying to do is, instead of letting every store pick and choose whatever sensor they want and try to hook it up themselves and, and then needing a special agency for that, they're developing these technologies under kind of an umbrella where people can buy complete solutions. Probably Intel will not be selling them to stores, but they're just trying to help shops not having to reinvent the wheel, but uh, complete packages being uh, being available to them. 
I mean, that, that makes sense. I'm guessing that a bunch of other companies are probably investing in, in, in retail now, too. It's, you know, someone made something cool, so then people are going to throw money towards that. Uh, yeah, it, it would be nice to have, uh, you know, full-on solutions that stores can just uh, basically buy off the shelf and plug in. But that's, that's just what I would expect. Probably won't be as good as somebody like Amazon since they're the masters of moving products. Yeah, what I think is that you've seen that the Internet of Things, or at least scanning and positioning of products and, and, and boxes and things, has been a big hit in the logistics industry more than it has actually in the home, right? The logistics industry just jumped yeah, on this yeah. and, and it's working. So now instead of capitalizing in the home, Intel with them with their chips are, are trying to see, okay, so where do logistics and consumer meet? And can we see if we can wake up that market before we try to attack the home again? I mean, my, 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 my concern about this is again, like uh, companies that like re retail is not really in, into its wheelhouse. And you're sort of like, are they like, yeah, some people, they're going to make a solution. Yes. Some people will buy it. Yes. It will probably be moderately decent at best, like eye roll, you know, it's, it's like, uh, like I just wish, uh, companies would, uh, would really sort of double down on some of their strategic bets and, and, and build up capabilities so that it did just end up like, Hey, IOT, let's stick a chip in something. And, and then it's IOT and it works as opposed to thinking about what you know, businesses or consumers or strategy really demands from the IoT space. Uh, and, and for Intel, same with the retail space, right? What what does it really demand? Are they going after in-store analytics? Are they going after movement of of goods and services? So, yeah. well, I guess that's what about, that, all that money is going to figure out. They're talking about this project starting off, right? So they'll figure that out. And Intel is the chip supplier and the capability supplier, not the solution provider, right? Intel makes chips for laptops. They don't make the laptops themselves. Okay, good, yeah, good they, point. They do, but they know that they're making them mostly for people who build them into things. So they're making yeah. example products with capabilities that people can buy and then build products on top of that. So the actual uh, service okay, provider yes, is point. not there yet. Yeah. So last topic okay, I so saw. Okay, so tell me... What? No, no. I'm I'm saying tell me what you think about 300 for the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> I well, I don't want to talk about I don't want to talk about anything else until we talk about the Nintendo Switch being more expensive than the Xbox and the PlayStation. Oh. That's that's what we're going to talk about now. How do you feel about that? I actually thought it was cheap. Um the reason that it's it more what? expensive is because both of the uh Xbox and uh PlayStation have gone through their refreshes and their uh turbo versions if you want to call it that meaning that they're about mid-cycle which is why the non sure but but no consumer cares when they go to purchase a system like hey the, these guys are cheaper because they've had more time to market it's like they do i see a system and it's they more know expensive. that a new one is coming up within several years and they know that the, this nintendo will last them at least six more years that's how co consoles have been over time yeah but you think you think playstation uh, Xbox, like, like these platforms, uh, these, these game consoles that have not platforms, sorry, game consoles that have, uh, you know, many more games built for them, probably, you know, higher end technical specifications, uh, you know, are going to, and they're cheaper. That just seems to me like, uh, like a good punch in the stomach for Nintendo who, who is already having problems because of the damn Super Mario run payment issue. Yeah. Okay. But besides that topic, I, I never really think that. Nintendo is attacking the same market as Xbox and PlayStation are. Their games are very different. Uh, now even their console is different. It's aimed at different types of situations. 
Um, so so I, I, I'm with you on that. I'm not going to disagree, but it seems like the, the market that they're... Okay. I, I still feel like Nintendo doesn't get this whole mobile thing. Like they're, they're still like poking around and like, mobile phones? The future is here. Um, because the, the casual gaming market they're going after seems like it's already been taken up by the mobile phone market. And then there's the hardcore gaming market, the Xbox, PlayStation, which is taken up by them. So they're putting in what, like the, the Wii, you had, a, had this great success because you didn't have uh, casual games gamers served by anybody. And now the phone does that. The phone can serve casual gamers. So, and then the phone also serves gamers who are on the go. And I, I love, I, I mean, we talked about the Nintendo Switch. I love, I love the aspect of the responsive hardware. I love how it goes into different situations. I love the social context of it, but it feels like the scenarios that it's trying to serve, especially at the price point now, it, it, it's sort of like, um, it didn't lose me. I still think it's a cool idea. I just uh, struggle to wonder if it's going to compete. It will. Think about the kids, Joe. You're now thinking about your phone in your pocket and the games you might want to play, but I've spent the holidays with a bunch of kids that were not on their phones, which they have phones to play games on. They were playing Plants vs. Zombies on the Xbox, on the big screen. That's what they want. So, so then what are they going to get for the... Uh, why would they get a Nintendo Switch then? Especially will, if, it, if it can only be like one person per that small screen, right? It's, it's it like, you know, parents aren't going to go out and buy two of these to get two of the smaller screens so the two kids are, can play side by side. Aren't they? You, you've never seen siblings with two Game Boys? Those, those were a lot cheaper. You're, gonna, you're telling me that you're going to go out as a parent and you're going to see a PlayStation and Xbox that are cheaper. And then you're going to see uh, this Nintendo Switch and you're like, cool, we can take it portable, except we have two kids and only one of them gets to use it at one point and the other one has to use their phone. We have to, use, we have to buy two consoles if we want them to take these games portable. That to me, like the portability aspect just seems great for situations like you and me who are who you know may have game systems and then we come together from time to time as friends but from a family perspective I'm like oh oh that you're you're now into pain territory I, you know I was hoping this thing was going to be a lot cheaper and maybe maybe that could have been feasible yeah I'm curious to see what happens when it hits the market it's definitely uh, uh again kind of an experimental move from Nintendo <laughs> one experiment that they are heavily invested in so let's see where it goes no, I, I love the design. You know, I mean, I, we, we talked about this. I love the design. I love what they're trying to do with it as far as making gaming both individual and social. Mm-hmm. I think the scenarios they're going after are super interesting from a design perspective. I just wonder when you actually bring it to market as it comes on the market at the price point, how that's going to work and how they really thought through family scenarios and at the price point, how they thought about it competing with other consoles versus the casual gamer who may have moved on to other devices. Now we're talking about it. I do see Nintendo moving a little bit into the territory of maybe the Xbox and the PlayStation. And then if they can't compete on price, I'm not sure if they can compete with other things. I'm curious. I'm not going to do any prediction. The one thing I will say is last week we talked about our trends. And one of the trends we do want to see in 2017 is um, we didn't talk about this one, but people remember why they pay, right? People remember that you know, like, you know, paying for Super Mario Run, $10, $10 or 10 euros really is fine when we used to come from pay, play, ah, paying 30 or $40 uh, or euros for a game, you know, 10 years ago or 50 euros for a game, right? And we still do on the PlayStation or Xbox, but for some reason on mobile, we consider it, these need to be 99 cents. 
So we do, we do have a trend that we'd like to see that people remember why they pay for things and people are willing to invest in um, products that are brought to market and are really invested in um, by the companies that make them. Yeah, and but keep in, this in mind, case, I, console games used to live on a fixed piece of hardware, meaning that whenever the development was done, you ship the cartridges out and they live forever, or at least as long as a console will live. Mm. But right now with phone games, you release it and two weeks later, there is a phone software update and your team needs to get back to the drawing board to fix whatever has been broken. And on Android, you have thousands of different devices that will handle your game differently. So if anything, mobile phone uh, game development is, is at least more intense over time than it ever was for consoles. Agree. Yeah, no, excellent point. I'll let you have uh, get take us away with one more piece of news and then we'll hit up uh, main topic. The Swedish ambulances. It's, it's really fun. I'm not sure who listens to the radio in their car, but these radios have a, a functionality that can override whatever you're listening to with the current traffic announcements. And I've heard this in a lot of cars where all of a sudden you're, you're listening to a nice song and it's interrupted by, okay, there is a uh, traffic accident on this and that road, try to avoid it, blah, blah, blah. And what Sweden is now going to do, they're going to do a test with ambulances being able to broadcast this signal locally to only drivers that are in the area that the ambulance will pass. So they will be able to shut off people's music so they can actually hear an announcement that an ambulance is coming and get out of the way. It's an experiment that's going to uh, take place over the next few months. And um, even though it's using old technology, it has all the feeling of connected technology in being able to selectively broadcast to a group of people that are affected by this and not the rest. I'm quite curious if, if this is going to work out or actually cause more panic. No, I mean, it feels like the emergency broadcast uh, station on TV, right? When there's an emergency, it just takes over your TV. Or... Exactly like that, except with, an, with, with a car driving down the highway. All right. I, I don't have much to say about that beyond, yeah, I'm always a fan of, uh, of, of safety, of being able to say, get out of the way if you're a motorist. Main, uh, main topic? Go for it. Okay. Uh, so, I mean, with a lot of the stuff that we talk about with our news and, and with all these types of things, sometimes we, we stray a little bit off the track of design and we do come from design backgrounds and work in a uh, design consultancy and all these types of things. And today I wanted to, uh, I want to talk a little bit about the work that, that I've been over here in, uh, in Malaysia doing and just talk a little bit about some of the stuff that we do as designers that may not always be um, what appears to be super designy. So I, I've been over here working with a telco. I, you know, I won't talk about which telco. And one of the things, uh, the main thing actually that I've been doing, I've been here for 10 weeks. I've been here as a full-time designer but I have not done one wireframe or opened up one design program. I've worked purely in Excel. And now people are either thinking that like, how is that even possible? Like what, what am, what's going on? Yeah, designers make things pretty, right? Yeah, yeah. And this is something that we see sometimes at, at Raft, but I don't think to this degree, but I've been working on customer journeys uh, for, for a, an incredibly long time. And, and quite honestly, this is something I think a designer uh, could do for a year without ever opening uh, a design program. So explain customer journeys in a bit more detail. Think about it this way. And this, this, this isn't the way that we're necessarily doing it. I'm abstracting the process a little bit. Um, but for any company, 
for any release they do or if they set a vision, right? In three years, we want to accomplish this vision. In order to do that, you need to have a way to get to that vision. You need several, whether those are strategic pillars in place that give you, you know, something to go towards. Uh, from that point, you can start to extrapolate and call out what is the customer journey that you want people who use your product to have. So if you are a telco, right, what's the type of experience you want to have for somebody signing up for a product? When somebody has to pay a bill, how are they doing that? Um, and I, I know most people listening to this may be like, well, paying a bill, of course, you just like, maybe you just do direct debit or something like that, or just link your bank card. Um, but there are a lot of different ways that different people pay. There is, you know, not everybody has a bank card. Not everybody has a bank even, um, especially when you're getting into developing markets. And so how do you create a customer experience that is worthy of, uh, of, of well, not worthy, I would say, but something that is uh, a, a positive customer experience. And you sit down with the team and you look at the vision you're trying to get to and then you paint a picture and this is done in words. You can also do illustrations. Um, but over the last 10 weeks, we've been painting pictures with words, of course, of what we want people to go through when they sign up. And this is something that's so important because for designers, you know, at the point you get to wireframes, you're then at an individual product level. Uh, you're at the level of, you know, I'm looking at a phone, an application on a phone. I'm looking at a website on a computer. I'm looking at a website on a phone. Right, but before you get to that point, I think everybody knows, and especially people who work in service design, that people don't just use one product, but they're going to cross multiple different channels. They're going to have different stages in their life. Maybe at one point they're just using um, a prepaid account, and then they're going to switch over to a postpaid account. Right. So uh, there's all these different changes that can come up in users' lives as well. And how do you account for those? And that's what the last uh, that's what the last ten weeks has been doing. Is before we hit into any wireframes or do any of that, we're laying the foundation of what we want customers to do. Yeah, and I think it's one of the basic tools of being a user experience designer, right? It is the thing that makes you aware of all of the steps instead of just the customer product interaction. If you would like look at classical industrial design, it's all about how to make this product and how will the user use this product. But a user journey actually looks at everything from the user getting to know about the product and what it is all the way until uh, basically disposing or thinking of a new version of that product. Yeah. So, so one of the old customer journeys that we used, and this is something from, from years ago, uh, Chris, you, you may remember things like this um, because you worked on the project too with me, but when you go through attract, you know, right, how do you attract customers to your brand? What are you doing for advertising? How, what are you doing on social media, right? How do customers, once they know what your brand is, how do they learn about it? Are they going to a website? Are they going to, you know, a decade ago, a microsite? Are they, they're not going to download your app to learn about it. So are they going to walk into a store? And then at that point, once they've walked into the store, what's that experience? Uh, so, so attract, learn, and then you have, you know, sign up or purchase, buy. Uh, at, at that point, what's that, you know, how do you get users signed up? How do you, you know, sell them additional products, perhaps products that, that they may need, or you're trying to get them away from a competitor. How do you grow that customer? Right. I mean, so th this was one of the things that, uh, for, for Vodafone and, and Vodafone is not the client I'm working for, by the way, Vodafone is the client is not the client, the, um, uh, the company I use in Netherlands. 
and this this was always this flabbergasted me, uh, where my contract ran out, and I was paying month to month, and they would call me up uh, every every week and say, "Hey, your contract is out. Do you want to resign?" I was like, uh, "Why would I want to resign to a contract?" And they never had an answer for me. They were like, "Well, you know, th- then then it's better, you know." Like, no, it's better for you. I mean, but it, it was shocking to me that they didn't say, hey, you know what? We're going to give you a better price. Or, you know what? Come into the store and check out the new phones that we have. That's super cool. They were purely focused on conversion. And it was the dumbest um, response to follow up. And this is one of those reasons why you write a customer journey. Because if someone had sitting down and written that and really thought through that and thought through that from a customer point of view, they would have said, well, yeah, why the hell would the customer sign up? You have to give them some sort of reason to lock themselves into another year contract. So what reason are, them, are you giving them? Uh, but, but those are the things uh, that you go through and that at each step of a customer journey, you really look at the different channels that they're using, the different experiences that you want to enable. And this is a lot of this is the foundation of service design, right? Multi-channel, multi-actor uh, situations that you're trying to map out. And the difference is, I think, with service design, people rely on diagrams that are fairly high level um, but then at some point from service design, you have to break it down into much more detailed uh, stories because how else are you going to figure out what features you need, right? If, if, if it's just, yeah, a customer signs up in the store and then they pay their bill on the app, that's great. But how do you know the hundred features that you need in the app? How do you know what the salespeople in the store need to say? And that's really where I, I, I see a lot of designers not necessarily thinking it's design, right? They don't think it's designed to sit in Word or Excel, or Keynote, or whatever they're going to use, or a text editor for months on end detailing these out. But if you can't articulate exactly what those reasons are, then how are you going to know what you're you're building? How do you know what your features are, what your wireframes are? Yeah, this is, I think, a little bit where this idea of uh, designers or storytellers comes from, from the whole user journey and describing all of these steps and uh, talking about the happy flow when everything goes right and talking about issues where, where problems arise and how to solve those. And I know the famous designer, Steven Zachmeister does not agree. We'll put a link of his video about you are not a storyteller in the show notes. Well, I, I, I agree how he explains it. Um, right. But, yeah. but I, yes, I understand the both sides of the story. Yeah. And I, I think this, this broader approach where designers are being put on these projects where they're looking at the complete user journey and are there for a much longer trajectory and are starting to influence not only the product that they're looking at, but everything around it might have been one of the main reasons why lots of bigger companies have been buying up smaller and bigger design studios over the past years, because they want these teams to be on these projects and on these larger scale, longer term uh, things that happen within companies. They're not buying a design agency for design, but they're buying design thinking expertise in-house. I totally agree, right? And and for for whenever someone's going to buy Raft for a hundred million, we're right here. We're waiting for you guys. Um, until that point, though, uh, you know a lot of what we what we talk about is trying to raise up the the level of design that we do. Um, this idea that we look a lot at the business side of things because uh, we had this conversation with Dave right several several months ago on the podcast. Yeah. And one of the things we talked about is, is that if you're just doing wireframes, that job may not exist in five years or 10 years, right? That job may be automated. It may, like, yes, a design job may be uh, pulled in 
may be eliminated due to to automation. Uh, you know, you have companies like Squarespace that already make websites quite easy to make. So you really need to figure out where design is going. And for that, I, you know, I, I think service design is a, is a great way of looking at that because it really does, as you say, bring in design thinking and and cross channel support. But I think a lot of designers, anybody who thinks about, you know, yes, th- th- this company that I'm working for needs an application. And let let's say before they really know what's going on, they're selling an application, or the company has come to the designer and they're like, well, here's the application we need. And here's the 56 features that we need in it. If as a designer, you are not doing your, your job, unless you're saying, tell me how you see users using these, you know, what's the, yes, there is a priority maybe of these, but what's the journey that you see people using these? How do you see people moving between these, um, these, uh, different features? Because that's going to help establish an information architecture. That's going to help establish how you're grouping your navigation. If you're understanding how people are going to be using this application, if not, and all you're doing is, is you know, you're logically placing things into buckets without thinking through from the user side. That's not really doing a, a great job of in-depth design. That's basically doing layout. And I think designers need to be weary that there's a whole other level of digging into requirements and features and priorities and understanding how users really look at, you know, a, a broader system. Any Anybody can understand that the way they use a product often traverses multiple channels, but for some reason designers will then jump on, well, let me design this application. And I exactly. think you're starting to see service design come up, you know, because of that. You see that now the iPhone, because we're, we're mostly talking about mobile phone applications at the moment, which is still seems to be the, the, the main area that most designers are working on now, websites and mobile applications. But the iPhone is now 10 years old and all things seem to be kind of solidifying into a way things work. There's always the, the odd one out apps like Snapchat coming out a few years ago with something that was completely different. But you also see standards and frameworks come out like Google Material Design. And still, you have that framework. There is a way in which uh, they prescribe how to use it. But you can still have good apps and bad apps in that. And that just has to do with what type of functionality are you putting in there what is often used? What is not often used? How do you solve problems? How do you group all of these things? Like the way they look and the way they are structured is only one side of the equation, but the way they're being used is also important. And the way they're being used together with other things is what's the most important almost. This comes back to, we've mentioned this before, so mobile phones, right? But there's these whole new set of different UI methods emerging, right? There's, there's voice, there's bot. And understanding more around the customer journey, the foundational aspects of how somebody is going to use a product and how they want to use a product is going to then allow you to enable selection of the best way that you execute on that product. And I, I, again, so this, you know, tying some of the things we've talked about in the last weeks, but these are the things that from us is, I mean, this, and this is one of the more designy conversations we've had, actually. I, yeah. I thought we were going to, I thought I was going to talk about customer journeys and then we were going to end up in telco land. Uh, so it's actually really nice to to stick with design for a while, and Chus, uh, I mean, you know, you're 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 doing some of this as well. So you're working for a travel company at the moment. Uh, you have, yep. you know, there's a team in Amsterdam uh, that that that's doing travel work, and part of what you're doing is looking at the customer journey, and that the company itself only controls, only has real control over the middle steps of the customer journey, from the point that you leave the house and you need to walk 
to get to their services. And at the point you leave their services and you need to get to your destination, some of these things aren't covered, but you need to have an understanding of what those are. And that's where you're starting. And you're not, you, I mean, you know, it, it will be a few months, I think, before you even start to look at what UI could look like, right? You're in the realm of what are, how are users, you know, using these services? What are they doing? And how do we improve how they're using these services? Exactly. And in, in this case, we're not using Excel or Word to describe this. We are making it visual, but on purpose, we're trying to avoid putting literal UI that looks nice into boxes that look like certain devices to keep the conversation open. So in a way, we are doing a visual version to speak to people's imagination more than we are trying to uh, give them literal examples because this would just set the people at the company to say, okay, we need to make this app or okay, we need to make this device. And we're trying to steer clear of that. So I, I, looking at the time, see if we can keep this uh, to, to 35 minutes. But I'll, I'll let you have the last words once I say this. But to wrap the things up that we've been talking about, when as a designer, whatever, if you're a consultant, if you're in-house, um, the things that I, I think are important looking back on the last 15 minutes of conversation is understanding how somebody uses your product and how somebody uses your product within their bigger journey. Your product is more than likely one piece of a larger journey they're having, whether your product is an application, whether it's a retail store, whether, I mean, you know, whether you're designing a can of Coke, right, which is, just happens to be sitting in front of me here. What you're doing is part of a much larger journey and understanding that and understanding the different ways that somebody may come into contact with your product from an attract, from a learning aspect, from a purchasing, from an extending, you know, extending the offering uh, into an ecosystem. Maybe there's partners involved uh, to, you know, maybe the customer then leaves or maybe the customer has to change up a product, but really understanding that journey and then sitting down and thinking through how somebody is going to be using a product and writing that out. Do not be afraid of words. You know, use use your words um, because it is so it 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 is so sometimes forgotten that designers should just be able to write. Um, uh, a, I'll say a story, even though I know there was the designers are not storytellers, but but it's a story in the reference that you're telling a story about what a customer is doing. So it's not like you're writing a fiction uh, novel here. And at that point, you're, you'll at least get a better idea or a better understanding of what companies are going to go through when they have to select features, when they have to get an understanding of, of what they need to invest in and where they need to invest. And at best, you can even help them. This is part of that design strategy uh, package. You can even help them figure out maybe what types of UI is going to best engage the customer, what type of retail experience is going to best engage the customer. And you can even have an impact on what type of um, products they invest money in. Right. If it's voice, you know, maybe you could have a hand in, in helping talk about where companies invest. But to me, that is much more of a future of design where there's a where there's a more strategic element to it and there's more of an understanding of this journey than purely setting up and saying, I make an app or I make a website. Chus, last words over to you. Yeah. I think I think it doesn't have to be Excel or Word. If you are a sketcher, it's fine to sketch. Just try so, not no, to story, sketch. Storyboards are awesome. I'm just right. not a good sketcher. But yes, you are spot on. Storyboards yeah. would be awesome if I was good at sketching. 
but just try to sketch the people in the equation and the company in the equation and try not to sketch the screen and which buttons should be on there. Stay away from that until you are done with all of your stories. Don't make it too specific, make it more speak to the imagination. And I think secondly, and this is gonna sound boring, but you do need to get back to Word or Excel after that because you're working for a company that internally does not sketch. You need to make your final deliverable, your product, work with their internal processes. And that's that, yeah, developers cannot code features against a storyboard, let's say. Right. And great to communicate, bad to code. Yeah. In the end, you will need to get back to wrapping up your deliverable in a way that it can be consumed by the internal teams. And I do think that is still the responsibility of the designer to make sure that nothing gets lost in the translation of that. Those are my final words on this. Well then, uh, Chris, I will see you next week. Bye, man. Later.